0: Hey, folks. Welcome to the Dark Horse podcast live stream. I believe this is our 36th. Is that correct? That's right. 36. That's hard to imagine. (laughs) Hard to say, too. Yeah, it is hard to say. Harder that you try it at home. You'll see. Um, I'm sitting with Dr. Heather Hying, as always, and we have, as always, too much to discuss for the allotted time on account of it being 2020 and things just keep happening. Do they ever? It's uh, it's almost too much to keep up with. Um, of course, a lot going on uh, today, and uh, we will get to it in due course. Where shall we start?
1: You wanted to start with a summary of the three big ideas that you i have been talking about in the last couple of live streams and bring them all together just to remind us at the top of the hour. Verificationism, autoimmunity, and group psychosis.
0: Right, so these are three concepts that I believe are uh, at least very useful, if not necessary, in uh, cobbling together a mechanism for sense-making in this moment where our sense-making is becoming increasingly deranged. And in fact, the model in part explains why sense-making is becoming so deranged. So I'm actually going to start with autoimmunity. Autoimmunity is a process by which the body, which is supposed to recognize an absolute distinction between molecules that you yourself make and molecules that you yourself do not make, and therefore if they are organic molecules, the body assumes are hostile and it attacks them with the immune system. So that system develops when you're very young, your system recognizes every molecule that you yourself are producing, and it eliminates the cells in your immune system that react to it, leaving only cells that react to other things. So this is an analogy for the situation that we find ourselves in, where we see many in our midst attacking the very structures on which our system depends and they are attacking them with various rationalizations, claiming that these structures are so broken that they could not possibly be rescued. But the result is, just like a body that is rejecting its own tissue, that we are putting ourselves in mortal jeopardy as a result of this uh, misunderstanding. I would also, just as an aside, point out that many of the food sensitivities that some of us have, I have a very severe sensitivity to wheat, that these things are like autoimmunity, except instead of reacting to your own tissues, you're reacting to foods that you yourself consume. So something has caused me, for example, to become reactive to wheat molecules. When I eat them, my immune system reacts and I get sick as a result, not of the wheat, but as a result of my reaction to it. So autoimmunity is a key concept. The second key concept for sense-making in this moment uh, is verificationism. So verificationism is a process whereby instead of trying to find reasons to disbelieve some hypothesis, you look for reasons to believe it. And the problem with verificationism is that one can often find some evidence for a wrong idea. And therefore, if you are looking for evidence that confirms a hypothesis, you will very often validate it even though it is false. Whereas if you try to falsify a hypothesis and you fail, that means there isn't strong evidence against it and the hypothesis probably has a good degree of truth in it. So the claim is that most of what people are doing as they are trying to make sense of the world at the moment involves verificationism, that they have a perspective and they are looking for things that validate it and they are finding a tremendous amount of support For wrong ideas on the basis that they are looking only for those things that support them rather than things that negate them. Which results in what we are arguing is group psychosis. Psychosis is essentially the result of incompatible programs running simultaneously. That when one cannot reconcile two things or cannot find a mechanism to compartmentalize them and keep them apart. What happens is the programs keep tripping over each other, and so one ends up responding to a uh, a view of reality that is um, uh, false that. and disruptive of the ability to, to function properly. So much of what we see is the result, for example, of two perspectives, both of which are wrong being simultaneously deployed to different populations who find each other increasingly ununderstandable. These incompatibilities are resulting in us at some level literally becoming crazy, some of us as individuals, but all Mm -hmm. of us as part of this group that cannot figure out even in what language to approach each other to discuss what we face and what our overwhelmingly common interests clearly are. We can't figure out how to protect them because the uh, incompatibilities between these worldviews are too great. The gap is too big for us to look past it.
1: Yeah. In the language of sense making, we literally do not find any sense in those who are on the other side.
0: We do not find any sense. And increasingly, we regard them as some anomalous phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? In fact, I would argue that one of the outgrowths of a psychotic collective sense making is the verificationist belief that, in fact, you've got it right, and the other side is simply insane. Mm -hmm. And if one can, for a moment, just step out of your own sense-making bubble and realize that the likelihood of that is actually quite small, right? It's certainly possible for a small number of people to be simply insane. Mm -hmm. But the idea that um, half the population has simply lost its mind while you have retained a perfect grasp of what's going on is um, indeed quite unlikely so the trick the thing which actually i swear if you'll try it you'll find it rewarding and maybe even reassuring but the trick is to figure out who you can talk to in that group of people who you probably regard as batshit crazy who might be able to convey to you where to stand in order to see through their eyes now many on your own side will tell you don't you dare Right to the extent that you even humor them as if they are making some kind of point. You are putting the thing that we must do right away in jeopardy, and you must ignore that. If, if your purpose is to figure out what's going on rather than just to simply participate on a team, no, no matter how dangerous its viewpoint has become, then it is necessary that you figure out how to understand what those on the other side are seeing. All right. So that's the model, and indeed, I think you will see in many of the things that we discuss today that these these uh, ways, these concepts that help organize um, our thinking around the way events are unfolding in the world, many of them are manifest in these other unrelated topics or seemingly unrelated topics.
1: Well, and to your final point, there, I would say that we hear a lot from people who say they are right of center, uh, who say they enjoy hearing what we have to say because we are um, trying to make sense rather than simply indoctrinate. And there are a number of ways that that little little soundbite can sound, but um, that people are coming to us despite the fact that we probably have never voted the same way they have or would disagree on a lot of the methods by which we are trying to obtain a a just world, Um, but that so long as we do share underlying values, which the vast majority of us do, um, that uh, people are heartened uh, conservatives, good faith conservatives are heartened to hear us as good faith liberals um, doing this kind of analysis. And one of the things that is so disheartening, and I think we may, um, I mean, I guess we could start here, but I, I want to talk just briefly at some point today about um, about what's going on in Louisville and the response to it. I mean, maybe that is the right way. I thought we would finish there, but should we maybe start there?
0: Well, I want to uh, follow on two things that you okay. said, and then maybe we can come back to that. One is Uh, in somewhere in, I think it must have been at the end of last week, I happened to catch a Tucker Carlson uh, monologue in which he specifically alerted his audience. He called out honorable liberals who are horrified by what's going on on the nominal left at the moment. Mm -hmm. And his exact phrase was something like, you know, honorable liberals are horrified too. They exist, you know, Mm -hmm. Right. And he was actually calling out the very fact that it's easy to misunderstand that such a person on the other side might exist. And he is, uh, you know, I I felt a little bit that he was uh, winking at us and some of uh, our IDW friends who have uh, managed to make uh, higher quality sense in these confusing moments. But the other thing we get is the flip side, um, which you called out in an early live stream, uh, which was the inverse of trump derangement syndrome
1: ah, yes and so the mirror we, image of trump derange- derangement the mirror
0: image of trump derangement syndrome which we often hear too when we mm-hmm. critique trump when we say things like really he must be removed from office right we must vote him out i don't feel like i'm saying anything extraordinary in the context of a democracy, right The idea that a sitting president has demonstrated that they must uh, be eliminated in the next round of elections is par for the course, and yet we are frequently accused of being just simply blinded by our hatred for Trump and I must say, I don't actually feel hatred, I feel yeah. urgency, right I
1: feel no, like... but it's, it's that critique is exactly as dumb as the response uh, to Trump. That he cannot do anything right, and therefore anything that comes out of his mouth must be wrong. That is exactly as dumb, frankly, and exactly as as uh, as dangerous. Uh, response: You know, every, every person in any position must be critiquable and uh, ascribing to someone who critiques someone else uh, a a you know derangement syndrome as a way to get rid of their critique uh, is you know it's schoolyard tactics. It's 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 the antics of a third grader, really.
0: Well, so I want to, you know, the, the key question is can you escape it, whatever it is that drives you to these things. Mm-hmm. And I feel a lot of people are just being reflexive. Mm-hmm. And that the necessity at this moment, really the only hope I see for us navigating this moment in history and coming out uh, in any sort of decent shape whatsoever, is the ability to look past the triggers that other people have on their surface in order to be able to partner with others who are overwhelmingly in agreement about, for example, values. And so this is, this is what annoyed me so much about the Harper's letter was that it took great pains to stick a finger in the eye of conservatives rather than partnering with the conservatives who are clearly ready to play. And, um, so anyway, we need to stop being so triggered. people who uh, believe something that is incompatible with your worldview may believe many things that are compatible and finding the way to bridge those gaps is uh it is essential it is where where hope exists yeah. I and mean, hence hence the resonance of the concept of unity at the moment
1: so to uh to this point, and I don't think we should spend much time here because we have so many other things we want to do um it has been it has been reported just a couple of places that what is that something very very bad is going on in Louisville, Kentucky. So Zach, you can put up my screen and actually keep it up while I scroll through a couple of tabs. The Louisville Courier Journal, which is the local newspaper, <clears throat> reported on. Um, I was updated uh, yesterday, but it was reported first on August first. that the the Cuban community plans rally at the Nulu restaurant in response to Black Lives Matter demands. And uh, some of you will have heard what what this story is. But um, basically this guy, Fernando Martinez, uh, who is uh, himself an immigrant from... Cuba and has become successful as a restaurant group in Louisville. Uh, basically, received what he described as mafia tactics, shakedown requests uh, from the local Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and uh, yeah, be, they they were requiring things like X percent of the purchases be made from black-owned businesses and X percent of the employees be black to reflect uh, the underlying demographics of of Louisville. And you know this this is sort of as we have come to expect, at least the two of us and many of many people watching, from the, uh, we would like to think the fringe parts of the Black Lives Matter movement, but um, of course this, these sorts of things are described and to some degree celebrated on the Black, on the official Black Lives Matter website. So once again, Black Lives Matter is not what it seems just because it's wrapped up in a bow with words that sound like words we all should and need to be able to get behind, doesn't mean that it is what it claims to be. So the Courier Journal reported this and uh, Fox picked it up and uh, used, you know, added a little bit of reporting, but mostly I think just uh, picked up, picked up the story. So I, we've been looking at this story for a couple of days. Here's the, uh, um, here's Martinez, the Cuban restaurant owner with a statement. Um, and you know, rather than focus on, oh my God, here they go again, here goes Black Lives Matter again. I thought I just, look, I was actually hopeful. So this morning at 11:30 a.m. our Times, so just about an hour ago, I just went to five of the major media outlets and searched on Louisville, figuring that anything else might be too you know too fringe. but I just searched on Louisville. So when I searched on Louisville, after this story has been in the news um, that we are seeing for three days, the New York Times, um, its last Louisville story is from two days before. Um the Louisville paper first published this and um uh dec- in which Louisville was declaring racism a public health crisis. so nothing there. WAPO, the Washington Post, um sorry, my computer crashed just before airing. Um, just uh four days before, uh, is uh Louisville receiving an extension to respond to NCAA allegations, so nothing. There's something from longer ago about the Breonna Taylor protest, nothing there. CNN again, nothing. We apparently have a polar bear dying at a zoo, um, which, you know, it doesn't please me, but it has nothing to do with the actual news that is coming out of Louisville. Uh, here we have MSNBC. Similarly, absolutely nothing about this story. And uh, I went to Time Magazine as well, and again, nothing. So um, that's just I figure you could do this for almost all of these stories, and this was simple because there was a city where there have been protests, there has been action, there has been reporting of late. Let's see if, as soon as the narrative switches, we get any play at all, and apparently the answer is no.
0: So um, I want to take a little victory lap here for IDW-style sense-making, because the story clearly reflects a... Pattern. And I think actually some of the uh, demands were even more onerous than the ones uh, that you reported.
1: Yeah, actually, I uh, might be able to, d- don't switch to my thing here, but, um, you know, uh, nonprofits in the new district will submit to a voluntary external audit of their board of trustees and take necessary steps. Uh, quarterly roundtable discussions to be held accountable for their commitments to these demands, all business owners and nonprofit leaders. Um, yeah, and oh, dre- dress code policies. It, the claim is dress code pol- policies inherently discriminate against black folks within the transgender community. You must eliminate dress code policies, and we will not waver while the black community continues to be destroyed. So, so that's some of them.
0: Um, I would just like to point out, you just went through a series of mainstream uh, press outlets that failed to report the story entirely. Um, Earliest uh, prediction of such a thing, I would say, is Eric's coining of the term intersectional shakedown, Mm -hmm. which goes back years. Yep. Um, I have argued that- Well,
1: and of course his gin, gated institutional narrative. Both of those things are resonant.
0: Why do you not see this? Because the gate has closed and this narrative um, will not be breached by that inconvenient fact. Mm -hmm. Um, I have said that this movement is interested in reparations 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year at every context, in every scale, every interaction, right? This is beginning to be that. You have pointed to the proliferation of things like Black Lives Matter signs in store windows that you have called uh, don't, don't Hurt, hurt me, me displays. Uh, displays. Yep. And I believe that Michael Tracy, who to the point about uh, bridging divides with people, Michael Tracy, who has tangled with uh, various people in the IDW at various points, nonetheless put together a report, apparently, where he goes through, he was on the ground here in Portland, mm-hmm. and he released some very dramatic uh video of him being uh uh attacked by uh antifa members but Mm -hmm. he apparently shows what you and i know from being downtown here in portland which is that there is yes the protests were concentrated around the federal buildings but there's damage extensive and there are many businesses that effectively plea not to be injured on the basis that they support black Mm -hmm. lives matter and Mm so what this all does is, A, it makes it impossible to know how much organic support there actually is because there's a whole hell of a lot of inorganic support that people recognize that whether it's the question of their personal reputations being destroyed and their livelihoods being uh, wiped out or whether it's the businesses that they have built and their ability to continue to function in place. You know, we've seen years of this kind of nonsense where, you know, Women were attacked for uh, making burritos while not being mexican and mm-hmm. um, so anyway, the point is
1: and this and this is all uh, directly predicted by the Havel essay that I read from last time
0: exactly his greengrocer his greengrocer green who puts the sign in in his window um, so if you're paying attention to the mainstream sites, you will I have no idea that this is even going on. You will not understand that your sense-making is missing this very important piece of information about what this movement is. And so... When you see people like us troubled by the idea that this movement is partnering with the Democratic Party and what does that mean for the future of the country, Mm -hmm. you'll think we're overreacting, right? Because you've been fed a verificationist slate that will lead you to believe that things aren't nearly so troubling as they actually are.
1: We are, for instance, to believe that now the feds are out of Portland, everything's fine. And of course what has happened is that the... uh, that the rioters have moved to the east side of Portland to a local police precinct where they are making trouble there. They're no longer in front of the federal building. Um, They've they have moved their activities. So all those going to the federal building and looking for confirmation that it was the feds who were causing this can find that. That is the verificationism in action.
0: So it's like... Um... Willful blindness using verificationism, you right. will be provided a set of evidence that is safe for you to navigate and say i don 't see the problem right. and it's uh, it's very very dangerous yeah um I guess one final point I would okay. make is something emerged uh, i believe yesterday um, body cam footage from the george floyd arrest, and I must say back when I was on uh joe rogan's program last when, when would that have been
1: june maybe july june july
0: somewhere on the cusp of uh of the dawning of july
1: mm-hmm. and i
0: um <laughs> I, one, among the things i talked to him about was Is that
1: the age of aquarius i'm not sure
0: <laughs> <laughs> no that's a boomer thing i'm not into it but um anyway i talked to joe about the troubling hints that the George Floyd arrest was a very complex thing that would require a court to sort out the details, which I still feel very strange about saying, given uh, what everybody seems to believe about this arrest. In the intervening time, a transcript of the body cam footage emerged, and I read it as you did, and um, it is full of complexities that reflect, yes, the need to actually sort out what the police policy was, what the state of George Floyd was, lots of things, including that he uh, insisted he couldn't breathe before he ever hit the ground, that he actually um, requested to be put on the ground, that he refused to be put in the, in the vehicle. But in any case, the body cam footage emerged yesterday, and it does reflect the same complexity that requires um, sorting this out in a court. But then today, CNN released an edit of that video which seems to strongly suggest the alternative interpretation that everything is exactly as you've been told and it's just as dire as you think so are you
1: saying that what was released yesterday is unedited that we have access that what was released by the police department presumably is unedited do we have reason to believe that that's true
0: i am saying that First of all, I'm not sure what unedited means. There's obviously a start and a stop point, and sure. you've got but two with, cameras. But between
1: the start and stop point, are we seeing everything that was recorded?
0: Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I'd like to know the answer to so it. So
1: an edit of an edit is obviously devious, but an edit of a non-edit is even is far more devious. Right.
0: And here's what I would caution our viewers. I think you should see the whole thing. And before you formulate a judgment on what you've seen, you should look at all of it in context if you assume that CNN is presenting you with the salient bits and you make, you formulate a judgment based on that, I think you will come out somewhere very different than you would come out if you just simply looked at whatever it is that the body cams recorded as they were operating. So um, this, you know, incredibly uncomfortable to talk about this, but the complexity of what unfolds is substantial and you should not let Anybody tell you what it means? The answer is this does require a court. And in order to have a court that functions properly, it requires that citizens who sit in that court as members of a jury understand that they are entitled to reason based on evidence rather than um, based on the threat of violence that clearly exists if the verdict does not go the way the public expects and most of the public hopes it goes. So, um, Anyway, it's a caution about verificationism and about Mm -hmm. the fact that the gated institutional narrative uh, is inclined to deliver you something that your verificationist mindset is likely to accept and that this can actually march us into great danger uh, of historical proportions.
1: Okay, should we move on to getting rid of history and math?
0: Oh, please. Yeah, those are irritating.
1: Yeah. All of us had some moments at least, if not you know, totally ridiculous classes, so let's just get rid of them.
0: Yeah. Chalk on the sleeves. There's lots of things that mm. are very troubling about math.
1: Yeah. Okay. Zach, would you show my screen here? Uh, this is actually uh, reported by NBC. Uh, Chicago area leaders call for Illinois to abolish history classes. A state Rep. LaShawn K. Ford said that current history teachings overlook the contributions of women and minorities. That may well be true, um, but from that starting point... Uh, He then says third paragraph here before the um, Ford asked the uh, ISBOE and school districts to immediately remove history curriculum and books that quote unfairly communicate history until quote a suitable alternative is developed. He is asking for a change to the history curriculum at schools statewide and a temporary halt for all history instruction until an alternative is decided upon. How is it that you think a new history curriculum is going to be decided upon. I'll bet this guy gets to make some of those decisions, and maybe he even gets to populate the committee that makes those decisions. So, Zach, you can you can take that down now. That's um, at some level more of the same. Defund STEM, you know, defund history. The, he does not use the word defund, but we do have uh, an academic. Uh, Rochelle Gutierrez, uh, who suggests in a tweet, I'm, I'm not going to show it, um, but I will just read uh, from it, that we should defund math. She is saying, um, sorry, let me pull it up so that I can see it, Um I think that we should be literally defunding math from K-12 K twelve curriculum, requirements and testing, and literally defunding math from society, parentheses, STEM funding and salaries, but also figuratively from our minds, parentheses, giving the current version more value than other subjects or gifts. So hat tip to James Lindsay for bringing this to light. Uh, he is, as always, on top of this stuff. Um, so I just, I went and looked at who this person is. Um, she's... She's tenured, it appears to be, at um, uh, one of the Illinois state universities. And um, she has degrees in education, not in math, but her profile makes it look because she is interested in curriculum reform of math, that she's she's somehow involved, that she somehow has expertise in math, you know, she's in math's education. She doesn't have any degrees in math. She has degrees in education. So we have pointed out, you can just show this super briefly, Brett. This is their, This is her CV. This is her curriculum vitae, which is the uh, fancy resume for academics. So yeah, she's at uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Um, and wow, she got her degree at University of Chicago, important school, but it's a school of head. She got her PhD in education and curriculum and instruction. And she is um, confusing everyone. Who is listening to her into thinking that someone who knows math, who does math, who thinks in math, thinks also that we need to get math out of the K twelve curriculum. We then she expands a little bit. We need to get STEM, all of STEM, science, tech, uh, engineering, and math out of um, salaries and like just basically start defunding all of all of STEM. But I thought and,
0: shut down STEM was just for one day.
1: Yeah, no, it, it was except for it it wasn't except
0: for except for oh
1: except for it wasn't
0: that was the MOT.
1: The that Bailey was, the was
0: actually get rid of stem.
1: That was the mot That yeah. was the mot So, you know, at one level, this is just same old, same old, more of the same stuff, right? But the same moment that I saw this, I also was looking at, because I'm foolish enough still to um, subscribe to the hard copy of the Sunday New York Times, which you've been suggesting we drop for years now. We but
0: don't even have a bird to line the cage with.
1: No, we don't. We don't. But... um the front page of the Sunday New York Times this week, August 12, second. Uh, God, what month is it? <laughs> My God. Um, <clears throat> was headlined, Riding Subway Might Not Pose Inordinate Risk. So this is actually related to this mot of, uh, oh, shut down STEM for a day. Actually, we want to defund STEM. So here we have... Um, Show this for just a moment while I read the first two paragraphs here, Zach. Is the subway risky? It may be safer than you think. Um, So slightly different headline than what's in the hard copy, which I just showed you I have here. Um, Five months, reads the beginning of the article. Five months after the coronavirus outbreak engulfed New York City, riders are still staying away from public transportation in enormous numbers, often because they are concerned that sharing enclosed places with strangers is simply too dangerous. But the picture emerging in major cities across the world suggests that public transportation may not be as risky as nervous New Yorkers believe.
0: Nervous New Yorkers.
1: Nervous New Yorkers. <laughs> scared little New Yorkers. Okay, I'll give you my screen back. Thank you, love. Um, nervous New Yorkers. Simply too dangerous. Uh, she uses the word, the author uses the word scared later on. Find, you will find in this article, buried far deeper. They they buried the lead, of course. Um, but not only did they bury the lead, I don't think the author, and certainly not the headline writer, knows what the lead is. Uh, here's another quote from the article, which actually is accurate. Once too many people pack onto a train, the ability to provide proper ventilation diminishes significantly. When riders are standing shoulder to shoulder, any viral particles a sick passenger exhales could be readily inhaled by another passenger, even if both are wearing masks. So I'm going to put that into... Oh, no, I've lost my... Um, I'm going to put that into uh, math speak, biology speak. This This is going to be a strategy, do you decide to go on the subway or not, that is density dependent. It is density dependent. What you find in this really long article that, again, was the front page of the Sunday New York Times this week, is all sorts of... You know, we we looked at we looked at places worldwide, and no one has been able to track outbreaks to subways since the pandemic has broken. And they do mention that MIT article um, that found specific um, transmission risks on the New York subway. Uh, and the one little nod to that is that many people questioned its methodology. <laughs> and there's no link. I, I, I can't see who questioned its methodology. I'm sure people did, but we talked about that article in some depth back. I don't even know what episode. Thirteen, yep. I'll make it up, um, something like that, uh, and you know it looked it looked good to us. It was compelling, but what was the big difference between the New York subway in March versus now? There were many, many, many more people riding on it, and nowhere in the world is mass transit does mass transit have the ridership that it did pre pandemic. So. A, it is difficult to do track and trace with subway ridership because most people aren't tracing their own movements that way, and and it's just not being done at that level. Um, But even if it were, even if the track and trace data were fully reliable with regard to subway ridership, it's not the same. We expect exactly for transmission of this virus to track with density of the virus being transmitted as droplets and aerosols in packed spaces, and because ridership is way down, of course, of course, riding subways is going to be safer. Which means that this is actually uh, a kind of like journalistic medical malpractice. Yeah. Because the lead that they give is actually, guys, you're being nervous, Nellie's. You're kind of scared. You should you should probably get back on your subways now. Well, you know what? If everyone takes their advice, suddenly the subways are going to get a lot more dangerous again because they're going to be. Densely packed again.
0: So let's demonstrate this with a reducto ad absurdum. Let's do it. Right at the point that nobody is on the subway, subways become perfectly safe by yes. this rubric.
1: And you and what, what you see and you know because and, and, okay, so there's an economic imperative here, right? Subways need riders in order to to pay their bills. And you know across the board, every sector in the economy there's probably a few that are that are growing right now but almost every sector in the economy is failing as a result of this pandemic and the responses to it and so presumably new york subway needs needs more riders in order to make revenue but once they get more writers, they're going to be, it's going to be a more dangerous place for those writers. And both of those things need to be in writers' heads when they are receiving information, especially from so patently enumerate journalists as this person is.
0: Well, I'm not even, I mean, an enumerate journalist, but it's serving a larger function here. Yes. And I bet you that this is an analog for what we went through with masks, where the oh, idea that's, I mean, is- actually, that's, that's where I'm going. Something yep. has decided- that you need to believe that subways are safe in order for New York to go back to functioning because nobody's got a plan B for what you do if people stop riding the subways because they know they're not safe. Right. So this is gated institutional narrative, yep. which is now feeding you the following pieces of information with which you can use your verificationist model to uh, get, get back to riding the subway. What you need to know is, yeah, people thought subways were dangerous. You probably heard that. The methodology of the study that said that, many people have questioned it many people have questioned it. So many people. Right. People on Twitter, people at the supermarket. (laughs) Um, and, uh, my
1: five-year-old questioned that study.
0: Well, that's even more people. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you've got that study was questionable, newer, better information, you know, take Mm. the software update. Actually the subway is much safer than you think. People who say otherwise are cowards and lo and Mm -hmm. behold, you're riding the subway again. When in fact you don't need that study to tell you that the subway is dangerous, right? Because what we know is that the reason that the subway is dangerous matches everything else we know, right? It's almost zero UV light environment. It's enclosed, it has a circulation system that is based on keeping people alive with oxygen rather than keeping the air purified.
1: This article does claim that the air circulation system on the New York subway is, uh, is equipped to deal with uh, with viral particles, I don't know if that's true, but it does make that claim.
0: Right, but it's a simple question of rate, which goes yes, back to your position exactly. about density dependence. Exactly, and say- that's I
1: mean that's th- that's that's why we tie it in here, right? Like we got people right now who are making headway with uh, not just shut down STEM for the day, but defund math, take math out of the schools, take ma- take people who use math out of the salaried faculty pool and take it out of your everyday assumption that it actually might be a way of describing the universe that is better than other ways of describing the universe. We've got people like that making those claims at the same moment that we've got the New York Times publishing yet another piece that doesn't get a you know, it's not the simplest mathematical concept, density dependence, but it's not that hard. And yet most people have probably never heard it in those, in those terms. I mean, everyone has actually, I think, an intuitive understanding of what it means. Like you all, everyone knows that if they're trying to do their grocery shopping quickly, they should go when there are likely to be fewer people in the store rather than more, right? That's a kind of density dependence. So everyone knows that. And probably everyone who remembers any of their like high school biology will remember Batesian mimicry. Right, in which you've got a toxic model organism, that's just the language of biology, a toxic model, um, which is out there paying the price of having both um, the coloration to warn predators and also the toxicity that will be the punishment for predators should they... Should they tangle with the model, and then you have a mimic species um, that is that looks like the model, and so pays the price of having to build those colors and such, um, but doesn't have the toxin, which is itself a big metabolic cost. Like toxins are expensive to to make and to maintain and to carry around, and so the mimic um, it can be really. Successful. Um, really successful. We have like king snakes mimicking coral snakes, for instance. And there, you know, there are many examples of this. And, w- and we, could, we could spend hours talking about this as we, as we have in the past. Um, but for now, let's just say that probably when you learned this in high school biology or even college biology, um, you weren't taught that that strategy isn't simply good. That strategy depends on the mimic being rare relative to the model. Because if predators are out there looking for food, and they take a little taste before they're old enough to know, or because they're you know, they in a species where they aren't taught by their moms what to eat, they take a little taste first of the brightly colored species that happens to be the non-toxic one, then they're going to extrapolate that they're all non-toxic. And so the non-toxic mimics need to be rare relative to the toxic models in order for this to work. That is density dependence. And guess what? Being safe on the subway with a virus that transmits through airborne particles is density dependent. Masks don't inherently make you safe whenever you wear them, right? We're not—we wouldn't be safer right now wearing masks because we live together and have been in isolation with each other and our two kids since March. Being outdoors, not around other people, at this point in the current evolution of this virus doesn't it wouldn't make you safer to be wearing a mask. When you're indoors with strangers, yes, you should be wearing a mask. It will make you safer because the density of viral particles that you're likely to run into is higher.
0: So looting? also fits a density-dependent model. Try looting when there's nobody else looting, and you will find yourself under arrest if you do it when everybody else is looting. It's perfect, it's perfect, yeah. So anyway, there's lots of places where this concept uh, is useful, and um, it is totally abused here in order to create a false story. I would point out also, I believe it was an MIT study that did the original work on the subways, And one of the things that was really good about it was it wasn't just like, well, the data suggests it was subways. It actually drew a distinction between local trains and express trains that fit the model. And the model was the local trains are actually more dangerous because you spend more time on them, which actually matches what we have learned about the way this virus transmits.
1: I think, well, I think it was impossible to know why they were more dangerous and I think there were two hypotheses, both of which seem right, right? So it's you spend more time on them if you're going from point A to point D and you don't stop at B and C, you spend yep. less time on an express train.
0: encounter but more, you en- people. but
1: more people are going on and off and therefore there's more opportunity for transmission because there's a greater chance right. that someone who's infected has gotten on And the they're tray. not
0: mutually exclusive. So right. if you get into a yes. box and people are exhaling virus if they have it into the box and the yep. box retains it even when the person gets off, and yes. more people are getting onto that box and you're in contact with that air for longer, you're going to get more virus. So the point is, it wasn't even like, we don't know if that methodology was any good. The fact that that methodology revealed, it's not that subways are dangerous, express trains are better and local trains are worse, that actually gives you a model for transmission. So this is high quality work, not low quality work. And for the New York Times to take up arms against it actually matches what Eric delivered in his most recent intro essay to his most recent Portal podcast, Mm -hmm. um, in which he builds a model one of the manifestations of which is the headline is the story right <laughs> this is about optics and the idea is yep. what are you supposed to take away from this subways are safer than you think yeah what happens don't to you be if you scared take that? you might yep. get covid you might give it to somebody who's going to die you might end up facing much longer term harms than yep. you otherwise uh would and so yep. you know this is directly putting people in danger
1: mm-hmm. and
0: um if you're a devotee of the New York Times, you won't know any better.
1: That's right. And I think it's also related to a culture that I've been commenting on for years, uh, which is that it's it's sort of widely considered in the intelligentsia, you know, at like high-end cocktail parties and the likes, um, to be cool. It's like cool or funny to be enumerate, right? To be like, oh, I suck at math or yeah. I never did well in math. Whereas obviously in the same circles, if you admitted that uh, you were illiterate, you would not be invited anymore, right? This, this wouldn't be acceptable. And, you know, the one sort of, you know, partial carving out is, you know, people who are dyslexic can say like, actually, I really struggle with that thing. And you need, you're still forced to jump through different and some of the same kind of hoops in order to demonstrate that you can do everything that us like sort of fully literate folk are doing. And yet us fully numerate folk are not even allowed to celebrate the fact that we actually have a way of understanding the world that is guess what guys better than the way that the enumerate folks people the enumerate people have of understanding the world it is at least A enumerate way of understanding the world that allows for things like density dependent transmission of viral particles will keep you alive for longer and safer for longer than an enumerate way of viewing the world, therefore it's better that's what better means
0: so better means multiple things, right? Yes, that's one of the things it's that better more accurate. means, though. It also means testable, reproducible. And so to both these issues here, um, if we can step back to the uh, question of getting rid of history, right? Getting rid of history is clearly in favor of some kind of myth making, which will fit some narrative. But in order to fit a narrative, rather than fit what actually took place, you have to eliminate the possibility that a method will tell you, no, that didn't happen. So Witness the 1619 project right yep. Yep. it is at best well-intentioned myth making that is designed to overwrite history at so best. that we don't have to deal with its um complexities but i then, think
1: that's the most generous interpretation possible
0: that's why i said at <laughs> best yep um but then the other thing let's look at this um this uh, math educator attacking math mm-hmm. this is autoimmunity yeah, That's what this is. This yeah. is the system which knows how to think quantitatively, attacking its ability to uh, act quantitatively. And look, it's the same thing everywhere. You've got things that want power, for which the thing that stands in their way is like reality and the ability to detect it and quantify it. Want to get rid of math. That's not yeah. surprising. If you want to rearrange uh, well-being, if you want to redistribute it, And what stands in your way is the fact that history doesn't reflect the story that justifies the redistribution, right? Because it's murkier than that. Then you go after history. And the point is, well, we can just overwrite that with something that does work. Mm -hmm. And what do you do if you want power? And the thing that stops you from taking power over restaurant owners is the police who show up and, uh, you know, arrest you for trying to extort Uh, Shop owners. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you do? You demand the uh, Abolition of the police. So it's attacking all of the structures that make civilization work on the basis that that gives Somebody the ability to do something they can't otherwise do that we should absolutely be horrified that they want to do Yeah, we need to know what happened in history We need to be able to quantify things be able to test hypotheses Be able to establish the counterintuitive rather than just assume that the intuitive and pleasant Mm -hmm. is always true that's not, that's no way to right. navigate. You, you won't get very far. You'll, you'll, you'll destroy yourself.
1: Yep. And I guess I want to go back uh, just briefly to this point about a mathematical understanding of even your daily life is just a superior one to an, an a mathematical and certainly to an anti-mathematical understanding of daily life. Uh, I want to uh, make it clear that I am totally recognizing that most math education sucks so badly. That most people who are enumerate now are not enumerate through, I won't say any fault of their own necessarily, but many, many people have been just betrayed by an educational system that took their mathematical, their native mathematical thinking away from them. So that's that's not fair. That's egregious. That was a you know massive failure of your education, if that happened to you. And I assume that it happened probably to a majority of people watching even this, because um, while uh, we know that we have you know, engineers and scientists and such among our viewers, unless you have gone into a science and have continued to explicitly think about math in your daily life, uh, most people imagine that... Um, because they didn't use it, they lost it, or worse yet, um, they never had it at all because their math teachers were terrible. They didn't understand math themselves. They used carrot and stick regimes to motivate rather than, oh my God, this is fun. Look at how much more empowered you can be in your own world and in the universe if you just have a few basic understandings of how math works and can employ those. You know, use them, put them in your toolkit and use them when they need to be used. So, um, one of the, one of the reasons at this point about math is going to be harder to make, I think, is because most most smart people, even most smart people who are paying attention to this and who are sort of anti woke and really alarmed about what is going on right now in American society that's spreading across the world, um, know themselves to be uh, a bit innumerate, know themselves to be a bit scared of math, and so may not want to speak up for fear of someone going, "Oh yeah, you know, prove you can do math." We don't need lots of people who can't currently think mathematically to prove it and you shouldn't be bullied into accepting that you need to prove it. Um, what you should be is actually angry that this happened to you if it did happen to you and, uh, and be willing to learn. You know, a concept like density dependence, now you've got it. And, you know, we could do a more complete job of it, but now you've got it. And now you know that actually going on the subway is safe is an incomplete rule that is inherently going to be wrong at least sometimes, and therefore you shouldn't put that in your, in your quiver. Like that is not one of the rules that you should be remembering. You should be thinking about density dependence of viral particles is, is what I should be considering as I decide whether or not I should go into that situation at all, and if I am in that situation, whether I should be masked, et cetera.
0: Um, <clears throat> I should also say, much like the situation with uh, the police, There's a lot to be said for the fact that our math education mechanism, exactly as you're suggesting here, is broken enough to disrupt most people's acquisition of the stuff they need. And that we have tools at our disposal that our ancestors did not, right? So, you know, when a chalkboard was your mechanism for conveying math, you're limited in a sense. But we have all kinds of tools that we could be leveraging much more effectively. You know, you could gamify the acquisition of math so that it did not feel like medicine that it felt like fun Mm -hmm. and were we to do that my
1: father did with me
0: exactly and but here's the Mm -hmm. key why was your father able to do that because he deeply understood math right most of the people teaching math do not deeply understand math at best they're competent at it yeah and the point is our whole mechanism for education suffers from the fact that we don't budget to get the people who are liable to be insightful into the field in order to teach children and this is pennywise yep. pound foolish because yep. you know if we had a mathematically literate population how many more things would we invent how much more likely would we be to um be able to overcome this nonsense uh, narrative manufacture because people would be able to detect the flaws in what they were reading mm-hmm. so you know the cost we are paying for not bringing the imaginative, really high quality mathematical minds into teaching young people how to think about math is, uh, it's a giant loss. And Mm -hmm. um, if, you know, we have immediate problems, but if we get past the immediate problems, addressing that would be really high on the list of
1: priorities. The way that math is taught is often terrible. And much of what is taught is um, the wrong stuff. Right. Like I, I having now now being familiar with a lot of the topics that are in the K-12 math curriculum because our kids have been through it and are you know advancing through it now. Um, it's clear that a lot of it is just, oh, well, this is this is in the textbook that we've always used. And so we're going to force you to walk through this. And, you know, both of our kids happen to have fun with math and I get to do with them some of the same stuff my dad did with me and, and, yep. and helping them out. But but I still run into stuff. I'm like, God, I just don't care. Like right. I, I just don't think this is this is going to come up. You know, it will come up in a very particular place, but math is everywhere. Let's be teaching math that reveals itself as everywhere, especially for the youngest ages, and then allow people to track into, you know, what kind do you, know, you think you're feeling entrepreneurial or you think you're, you know, feeling engineering or you're like or you just want to be able to interpret the news that you're getting without being duped by um, either are there bad actors or just people who are bad at math all the time.
0: And, you know, in some sense, I think, you know, I certainly did not have an easy relationship with my formal education at all. I mean, at no point, but I remember um, <laughs> you do remember, <laughs> um, but there's some, you know, I do feel educated somehow. Um, and I would say that as an educated person, uh, you say math is everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Math is everywhere. Chemistry is everywhere. Logic is everywhere. Right? Physics is everywhere. And the point is, you don't see to the deepest level, right? You don't see the world through the eyes of a theoretical physicist unless you have very good exposure. But the ability to peer into all of these levels, you know, when we talk about immunity, you're talking about the chemistry at the tip of something called an antibody that you've all heard of, but you don't realize this is a Y shaped molecule that has two pads on it that have electromagnetic idiosyncrasies that stick to some stuff and not other stuff for reasons Mm -hmm. that you could demonstrate with a child's magnets right? And so the ability to be able to see into these puzzles, it's not that hard if somebody who knew what they were were doing uh, placed it in front of you in a way that is uh, conducive to your acquiring it. It's effortless at some level. But if not, then it's just a struggle memorizing stuff from books that doesn't stick because it doesn't uh, it's not connected to anything. You
1: don't have you. You need to be able to build your own architecture that makes sense to you in your head, and such that when you get something new in your head, you can you can when you when you receive some information, you're like, oh, this will fit there. And you know, I feel this way very explicitly about um, animals and you know ecology and behavior. And you know, when I'm when I'm in the tropical rainforest and seeing yet another bird, yet another interesting thing, if I if I have literally the phylogenetic tree in my head and go like, oh. Well, um that's a woodpecker as opposed to a cuckoo as opposed to a tanager and I know what you know woodpeckers tend to do and oh that's something unusual for a woodpecker or oh no that fits right in. Um it just gives you an architecture right from the beginning that you can you can uh, you can base things off of. I think also what you just said makes me want to give a shout out to the model that was Evergreen when it worked, once again. Um, and I don't know that the program in question did work, but I, you've heard this story. When I was flying out to my interview at Evergreen, flipping through the, at that point, it was still paper catalogs back in, would have been early 2002, I guess. Um, like the, <clears throat> the catalog and these you know, full-time programs, again, where you often had multiple faculty teaching um, from very different disciplines. Uh, I found a program that really, this, this program was the one that made me think, ah, if you can do that there, this is where I want to be teaching and therefore learning, because I will be learning from my co-faculty and my students as well. It was called Centering, and it was about the science and art of pottery, of ceramics. And I had, you know, over the last few years at that point, become a potter myself and was fascinated with exactly the artistic manifestations of ceramic and i I particularly liked wheel thrown pottery and of course the physics in wheel thrown pottery is you know both obvious and intuitive which and you know we've talked about this with regard to frisbee as well um but also the chemistry, like I, I, I know the least about chemistry of all of the natural sciences probably, but once you are um, mixing your own glazes and putting pottery into sometimes an oxidation kiln and sometimes a reduction kiln and seeing the different ways that say, you know, copper reveals itself in an oxygen rich environment versus an oxygen-reduced environment is amazing, and it just brings the at least the science and physics to life, and you know I, I never dug my own clay, but you know you could do that and start to think about some of the underlying geology well, and biology too. And, the, and that's what this program allowed. Like this, it could have right yeah. the idea of learning how to make both hand built and wheel thrown uh, pottery and understanding the the physics and chemistry of it in the same place, at the same time, with the same faculty, the same students. That's what a, what's an, what an education can be, and um, that's part of what that's part of what we do mourn at Evergreen. Right.
0: I was just going to add that, uh, you also get issues of mathematical scale with respect to the particle size and the different kinds of clay and the way that they throw differently on a wheel. Oh, yeah. You know, How much they, versus... you know,
1: yeah. Porcelain versus, uh, a, a red, uh, a, a red clay base. Um, yeah. and I've now forgotten all the, all the various terms. Cause when we moved, I had to, I had to give up my pottery studio, um, that we had built for me in our backyard. Um, but you know, the, diff- the different shrinkage, right? Just, you know, some clay bodies will shrink 15%, some 25 and, uh, and-
0: planning for it. And, you know, if, if you've done logic. it wheel
1: thrown, it will shrink, in some, you know, with some kind of circularity to twist, it. And yeah. it's it's fascinating and remarkable. And it really does allow you to bring your science and your art brain together. Well, and, and, to, and most traditional education doesn't let that happen.
0: Because in that case, you've got a physical product right? There's also a reward structure built into it, which is really the hidden key to all education is that yeah. in general, we sit you in a chair and the reason that you want to learn the stuff is so that your teacher doesn't say mean things that you about you at the end of the term, yeah. which is not a good motivational structure. Whereas I want to get better at this because I saw that ornate thing and I'd like to be able to make one like it. Um, you know, that's a very powerful motivator. So yes, figuring yeah. out how to get the motivation in the right place is key. Yeah. And I would also point out, if I can, just go back to one other thing. Yeah. This issue of um, we must unmake history, and mind you, I think the history curriculum sucks. Sure. But, yeah. Um, we must unmake the history curriculum because certain populations are underrepresented in it. Really? How do you know? Right? How do you know? is a question that is dependent on a method, which is dependent on mathematics. So the point is these two stories are in conflict with each other. We must unmake the history curriculum because it is an error. But the very claim that it is an error about representation implies that there is a method which, with, with which we could figure out what is.
1: No, they, they've seen you coming. Well, of it, it's it's about your lived experience and your personal emotional feeling about it, and that is what makes it true.
0: Right, but then the point is... And it's is, not that
1: lived experience and personal emotional feelings about things aren't important and real, but it doesn't make things true. Well, what, but,
0: <laughs> but, but even then, yeah. like, look, I'll sign up for that. Okay, it's about lived experience. <laughs> Whose? Right? Because which history curriculum? Are the, is it everybody writes their own history curriculum? Mm-hmm. Or is it that the most aggrieved party gets to write history for the world? or what exactly is this right
1: no it's 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 that and it's you know it's 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 that latter thing and it is a an abuse of the idea of anything about the collective being a good thing and it you know it's part of what makes people so terrified of anything that sounds like socialized anything you know socialized medicine or or um you know or education sounds like this big boogeyman to a lot of people on the right because they've seen what thinking in terms of the collective can do but you know and it, my favorite example of yours is the um, the fire department. Oh, yeah. We have socialized fire departments, and good good for us.
0: Yeah. I yeah. mean, we didn't always, right? Now we do. You know, it used to be, I think there's a Roman example where they used to negotiate with you, uh, you know, and you'd pay more and more to get them to put out your house as it burned down because <laughs> something might be salvaged. And then, of course, there's a colonial version in which you had private fire departments and you had to have a badge uh, there's like a little metal badge you had to have on your building, or the fire department wouldn't lift a finger to help you. Mm-hmm. And so we dealt with that problem, and we socialized the cost. And it's a risk pool, and it makes perfect sense. And some things work this way, and some don't. But yeah. but anyway, well, and, so- that's, and
1: that and that's key, right? Some things work this way, and some things don't. Not saying that every you know everything right. should not be socialized, and socialized can go very, very badly, but look to the fire department for an example of how this works and how it's patently better than the other options that have been tried.
0: Right, so final cap on this, I would say, is if you do not take a verificationist approach, and if you simply even sign up for their epistemology and just see how far you can push it before it breaks down, it breaks down almost instantly, Mm -hmm. right? So, the example of, you know, if it's lived experience, whose lived experience is it that's going to tell us what we must do, what we must say, what we must accept? Um, the fact that these things can't even go two steps without contradicting themselves or revealing their absurdity is evidence that, in some sense, instead of saying, yes, I'm on board, Black Lives Matter, the answer is um, actually, you don't have a clue how things work, do you? Right? You're telling us that much. Yeah. And the idea that you want to reformulate civilization, including education and journalism and everything else, right? Tech sector. The tech sector, policing, mm-hmm. all of these things. Um, and you are simultaneously telling us that on any pos- any question on which we are entitled to investigate, it turns out you're in error and crazy should say well okay okay you have the psychosis maybe it is our responsibility to help you with that but it is certainly not our responsibility to put you in charge right that's (laughs) not a good idea
1: it is in fact our responsibility to not let you be in charge yes that that is what is in fact our responsibility it is in
0: fact our responsibility to you not to put you in charge not just the rest of us right the fact that you may be uh of A mind that the plane is being piloted by demons and that everybody else in the plane is a demon and that you are the only person who isn't possessed and therefore you're the best hope of landing. It doesn't make it true. Mm -hmm. And we have an obligation to you not to put you in the cockpit, right? right. So that is where we are.
1: Okay. Well, we got a lot more we want to talk about. We're coming up in an hour. Um, Lots of things in COVID space. um, And I know you wanted to at, at least get to talking about the testing regime.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll just introduce this. So I went through a situation where uh, about a week ago, no, a little more than a week ago, I had a headache that had no explanation. And I was concerned that I might have COVID. Um, And it was plausible that I would have contacted it, though I don't know of anybody. But anyway, it revealed to me something that I think is A, reflected in many people's experience, and B, that is really significant and um, pretty scary. So I didn't think there was a high chance I had COVID. I thought there might be a 5% chance that I had COVID. But in light of that, I know that if I did have COVID, I would go to extreme lengths to protect my family from getting it. You know, if it came down to it, I would, uh, you know, if I had a trailer, I'd live in it. If I had to, I'd rent a room somewhere and isolate myself. And, you know, I'd be very careful not to give it to anybody who came to the door, but I would you know, order food or whatever I had to do. So I wasn't contacting uh, the world would be the right thing to do. But what I found was a, okay, you think there's a 5% chance you have COVID. You need a test. Okay. So I went to get the test. I got put through a rigmarole to get the test, which was bewildering. I got the stupidest medical advice you can imagine. I was told simultaneously that I didn't need to worry about COVID because I had been misled by the press to think it was common. And then I was told if I had it, there would be no way to protect my family from getting it too.
1: Was that the same person who told you those two things? Same
0: person told me that inside of three sentences of each other. Um, So that was an official medical consultation. Then they didn't know what test they were giving me. I said, is this a PCR test? Oh, we don't know really? You don't know if it's the PCR test? Can you find out? Can you look it up? Do you have the the white paper that comes with the damn test? Um, well, I did find out it was the, the, paper t- the uh, PCR test. Um, but anyway, I went, I got the swab, and then I waited, and I waited, and I waited for a result, right? And while I waited, I was in the situation. Do I assume that I do have it? In which case, should I be at a hotel while I'm waiting for this test? That doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, It doesn't make any sense not to do that. So I was caught in a middle ground that I know is stupid, which is I was wearing a mask in the house, right, all the time, but I wasn't insisting that you guys wear masks, which probably if I did have COVID would be the minimum thing necessary, right? I left all the windows open, so we had airflow. I spent Mm -hmm. as much time outside as I could, but the point is the limit of what you can do if you think there's a 5% chance you've got it is very different than what you should do if you actually... Do have it, yeah, and it was a completely incoherent response, and I have a sense that what other people isn't
1: that the word that more than anything else describes the the collective response to this virus incoherent, incoherent, yeah,
0: absolutely incoherent, and then <coughs> ultimately, I did get my test results back; they were negative, but it doesn't mean that much. Why? Because
1: well, but before you explain, I mean, this is super important, but um. Really, you had none of the other symptoms and they disappeared quickly. And so in, in concert with a negative result, it seems it seems likely that that is an accurate negative result. However.
0: Yeah. I mean, I took my temperature daily. It never went up. So I had no other symptoms. The headache went away. I never figured out what it was about, but probably just a stray headache. But the point is, okay, I get my result and then I start looking into its false negative Rate and its false negative rate is through the roof, and it varies widely depending upon how many days into symptoms you actually had the test taken.
1: Because, guess what? Its efficacy is density dependent, right? It's de- <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> and so, anyway, my point is I think, first of all, every I just coughed during this little chat that is plausibly the first cough of a uh COVID uh set of symptoms, right? But almost certainly not. At the point that you cough, do you take action, right? So we've been handed a, well, you don't want to give other people COVID thing, but we have not been handed good tools with which to know if we have it or to trigger the top level action that you would want to take if you did have it. And my guess is almost everybody is navigating this badly. Almost everybody is probably rationalizing to themselves that I must not have it until it's way too late at which point um, there's a less they can, you know, do we know about how much COVID is responsive to our behavior? In other words, the difference between a case that is quick to go away and one of these cases that gives people symptoms for months down the road. I haven't seen those data. I haven't seen them either. And
1: aren't they, I mean, they, they would be relatively easy to collect. And there's some that would be the most interesting and important for those of us who could actually make sense of, okay, given that I can't trust the, the collaborations of data that we're seeing thrown at us, uh, I'd like to be able to make my own assessment. Right. Yeah. Does, does laying low, if, if you think you've got it, um have a an impact on the course of the disease. I think it almost certainly has to, but I don't think I've, I don't think the data are out there, at right. least not available.
0: And the fact that you and I are even if they are, the fact that you and I looking at all the places that we do look are unaware of what the advice would be about how to keep a case mild if such advice exists at all. Mm-hmm. The fact that you don't have a test that's worth a damn and therefore yeah. you know, lots of people are uh, getting false negatives who are positive and then acting in presumably reckless ways as a result of it. The whole thing is Wait. setting us up for failure. That's the point is yeah. we are being set up not only for personal, sometimes catastrophic medical failure, physiological failure mm-hmm. by our lack of information, but we are being set up for epidemiological failure on the basis That the data is too slow to emerge, it's too low quality, and the advice on what you're supposed to do is anecdotal at best. So, lots of the answer is lots and lots of people are dying. And as much as this disease isn't as deadly as we feared, it is potentially much more destructive. So, every time you hear, oh, it's not that serious because the death rate per infection is low, you should ask the question, okay, but. How much quality of life is being lost by people who recover or somewhat recover? Um, because the uh, the stuff I'm reading is certainly very frightening on that front.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And here, actually, if you want to show this, Zach, um, here's just a it's a science news article. So it's published in you know one of the top uh, tier science journals in the world. But it's one of these news articles uh, from brain fog to heart damage. COVID-19's lingering problems alarm scientists. And it starts with an extended anecdote. Um, about a, a neuroscientist uh who is thirty eight and has her own lab at university college london um, but who having quote unquote survived covid finds herself still with sufficient um, both uh, anatomical and physiological symptoms in terms of joint and muscle pain but also um neurological symptoms um, like she she is she she says she has brain fog and is and such that she cannot do the work that she is accustomed to doing, and that this is uh, now I think months. Oh, it says she said just three weeks since March when her body temperature was normal. So she's not dead. Therefore, she doesn't count as one of the deaths. And this is it's it's a terrible way of assessing the impact of a disease. Right, right. deaths versus not deaths. Well, this this woman's career may be over.
0: Maybe over. And we also don't know. She's young.
1: She's in her 30s.
0: Right. We also don't know, you know, as we've discussed models of senescence and the force that pulls you towards the grave, we don't know how much life has been lost. The fact that you die from the initial infection yes, is yes. one thing, but if you've had 15 years knocked off your life, that's not an insignificant fact.
1: So how many lives versus how much life? It's how a different way life? of counting. It's both counting, but it's, it's just a... T- bit more nuance it's just a little bit more uh categorization that is required to imagine sort of actuarially how you know what was your expected life uh life expectancy um and you know in 50 years we might be able to know right but it would it's it's going to be such noisy data that we might never be able to know but of people who tested positive and had cases that were serious enough to be noted, um, do they live less time than uh, are expected by uh, life expectancy tables? Yeah. And the prediction is that they will, although again, that's only counting just actual, you know, number of, amount of moments lived as opposed to quality of life.
0: Right. And the quality of life thing, you know, it's very hard to tell from the reports. The reports are frightening of what people experience, Yeah, but um, there is... You know, basically, people are having an attack on the tissues across their body, which gives a huge diversity of symptoms. I'm also hearing about the recurrence of these symptoms. I have one friend who has a pattern where he had it months ago and he recovered, and every month it recurs, and the pattern is that the degree of severity decreases over time. This is one person I consider him highly reliable in mm-hmm. terms of the pattern he's experiencing but the point is the diversity is way too high to even know how to count the damage here
1: yeah and that maybe just one more thing quickly before we we finish for this top hour um, that is part of what prompted a bunch of uh, scientists uh, to uh, create their own vaccine so this is published in mit technology review which is a very highly regarded publication uh and the headline is for those listening and not watching some scientists are taking a diy coronavirus vaccine and nobody knows if it's legal or if it works okay fair enough um it's the you know the story goes on this is their site here um they are calling themselves the rapid deployment vaccine collaborative and there's you know it's 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 fascinating there's there's a bunch of good stuff here about what they're doing what they're trying to do what they are not promising um, but their basic point is we don't foresee a uh, a valid and reliable vaccine coming anytime soon. And given that, and given how much we're seeing about, um, yes, pretty low death rate, but really high collateral damage rate from this virus, uh, we are going to prioritize uh, creating a vaccine for ourselves. And so they're doing, it's it's kind of citizen science by scientists. Yeah, George
0: Church is a big... Yeah, big name ex-
1: exactly. So
0: a very important person. Um,
1: you know neither of us has. We we just came uh, became aware of this. You know, like a half an hour or so before the podcast. So we have not fully vetted this. But I guess one question that shows up is, um, you know, just what do you think? Like, should should citizen scientists um, even be allowed to um, with tools that they have access to because some of them have research labs? create their own, um, you know, taking full responsibility for what happens um, if it doesn't go right, um, their own vaccines at home. And, and, you know, my first response is yeah.
0: Well, yes and no is my (laughs) response. That happens. I'm reading here what their mechanism is. And Mm -hmm. basically it's a synthetic peptide. They say these peptides are small synthetically produced uh, portions of viral sequence. Now, What this means is that they are delivering proteins which are matches for proteins produced by the virus, and therefore what they are doing is they are triggering the immune system to react to antigens that the virus itself produces so that when the virus shows up, your immune system recognizes ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Now that strikes me as much more likely to be safe Then the alternative, Mm -hmm. which is to produce an inactive virus, which therefore informs the immune system by actually diversifying in your system and uh, spreading antigens by a mechanism that doesn't make you sick, but does uh, infect cells.
1: Yeah. Now right? it, it's likely that... Or, um,
0: or the third case is to kill off a virus or inactivate it so that ah, your immune system just sees those particles itself.
1: Right. And and they say here also that you know, the antigen portion that they've chosen could be substituted by others. For example, the example they give is the recombinant SARS-CoV-2 spike RBD. Uh, and that, um, you know, for me, what that calls up is, okay, well... Uh, the efficacy of this or really any other vaccine. And they say too, this doesn't have to be for this you know, you could use this mechanism, this kind of this framework um, with other antigens from other viruses to make uh, vaccines for other viruses um, that it is likely to be highly different in efficacy depending on which particular antigen you use. And it's going to be difficult to predict in advance which antigen is most likely to produce the appropriate response in your own body.
0: Right. But let's put it this way. This is potentially a good idea. The mm-hmm. fact that they are not using virus decreases Presumably to zero the chances of a recombination event informing the virus of something it doesn't yet know, yeah um, the actual virus um, so peptides probably a good choice, however, the problem is you're you're playing with the information that the immune system uses to understand what antagonists it is encountering, and so the possibility exists for example, to trigger an autoimmunity by leading so You've got selection inside the body functioning to train the virus to be invisible to immune systems. That means the closer it gets to self, the harder it is for the immune system to fight. Mm -hmm. It's a go-to strategy. It's part of, you know, AIDS basically. HIV digs a hole in the immune system,
1: which it then disappears into, more or less. That's so, that's what an autoimmune disease means—that it tricks your body into thinking it's you, so that your own body doesn't go after it.
0: Well, no, an autoimmune disease. Let's say that a virus. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A virus yes, mimics yes. your own particles, yes. and then the immune system mm-hmm. chases it, and it starts reacting to stuff that's ever closer to you, and right. then sooner or later, it's attacking, yes. you know, your own tissue, like uh, cartilaginous tissue and. Rheumatoid arthritis, for example. Right, no, I misspoke. Um, yes, but <clears throat> but the point is, if you're, I'm not saying this isn't worth it. In this case, I share the authors of that um, paper's fear about the danger with COVID and the necessity to do something. Mm-hmm. But in general, do we want people messing around with informing immune systems? You know, uh, based on these things, there's a there's a big hazard here. So the point is, we really ought to be having a proper discussion about the costs, risks, and benefits of allowing this sort of behavior. And the problem is we can't do it in an environment where the New York Times is telling people that subways are probably safe and, uh, you know, uh, the WHO is telling us that masks don't work and all of this stuff that's clearly cooked up for reasons that have nothing to do with our actually being informed. So anyway, very important problem to be solved. All right,
1: I think we're, I think we're there.
0: <clears throat> I think we have arrived.
1: Yeah. So um, we will be taking your super chat questions in the next hour um, starting in about 15 minutes and we encourage you to if you have questions, either ask them at the very end of this hour. We'll be taking from this hour in monitor- monetary order and next hour in the order in which they come in. Uh, You can get access to a private Q and a that we'll do every month at my Patreon and at either of our Patreons um, access a private discord server for people who are interested in these kinds of conversations.
0: Um, I promised a unity update and there is one. The long awaited unity campfire is going to be deployed tomorrow with a special guest. I think you will be um, very pleased to see join our ranks. Um, we are likely to do this at 6 o'clock Pacific, that is 9 p.m. Eastern, so that we can get everybody uh, able to watch live. Um, so please tune into our channel to find that announcement. The Unity Channel. The Unity Channel. You can find that at Articles of Unity, at Articles of Unity on Twitter. Um, you can also follow me uh, on Twitter at Brett Weinstein, Brett has one T. Um, in any case, please join us for that. It should be great. Um, we failed to mention what take, took place in, uh, Beirut this morning. Sorry for that. I know I promised it on Twitter, but we just ran out of time. Um, so in any case, uh, if you're not aware of what's gone on, it's worth looking into. We will see you in 15 minutes. All right. Be well, everyone.